<clears throat> so I'm reading uh, from 2 Samuel, chapter 17, starting at verse 24, and it goes over into chapter 18. Sorry. <laughs> Do an interview just before I've got to come and read the Bible. That's hard. Um, okay. Starting at verse 24. David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Absalom had appointed Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Amasa was the son of Jether, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, and sister of Jeruiah, the mother of Joab. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, bought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep, and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. But they said, The people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, You must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men and the, the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule and as the mule went under thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I would put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armour bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. 
They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Thanks, Jenny. Please uh, keep your Bibles open. And uh, 6 to 8 are going to stay in with us um, today. You'll uh, return to your usual program next week when, as school goes back. Uh, let's pray again as we come to reflect on this part of God's Word. Father, please give us understanding of your Word. Uh, please work in our hearts that we would respond to you as you call us to. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you had to choose one um, or the other, which would you choose, love or justice? Maybe to depend on um, uh, whether we're on the receiving end of the love or the, or the justice. Maybe if we're in the wrong, perhaps we'd like to choose some loving kindness uh, rather than just condemnation. Or maybe if we've been wronged, maybe we would opt for justice to be upheld uh, rather than be not so concerned with, with pursuing love or kindness. And I think we can often see these, these two poles in the, the world around us, in, in the media, in popular culture. On the one hand, we're, we're called to respond to some people with, with love and acceptance and compassion. But then for others, well, the supposedly right response can only ever be just condemnation. But then on the personal front, we see this as well too, don't we? With those who are close to us, spouse, children, parents, siblings, close friends. For example, those who are parents, what do you do when your child does the wrong thing? Do you pursue justice or do you show love and mercy and grace? Or do you, do you try to sort of do, do both? Do you, or do you swing from, from one pole to the other? Can love and justice both somehow be achieved? If so, how? We often see this tension at work in our lives and we see it at work in today's passage as we continue to trace the, the mess in King David's house. His son Absalom has, has launched a full-scale rebellion against his father, attempting to become king in his place. And David's response to his son, he carries that same messy tension between love and justice. As we read this passage, I think we feel this tension. We're drawn into it. I hope and pray that this will also point us forward to God's solution to that tension, a solution that actually impacts and shapes our lives today. So look with me at this next section in 2 Samuel. We saw last week David's escape from the threat of Absalom, largely thanks to the shrewd advice of Hushai, who played to Absalom's ego uh, managed to delay his attack on David sufficiently for David and his men to have time to escape to the other side of the Jordan River. That's where we pick things up as we prepare for battle. We're at point one on the outline if you're following along. Uh, verse 24, David went to Mahanaim, which was a town on the, uh, the east side of the Jordan River. Literally the name uh, Mahanaim means, um, the, sorry, the, the, the name of that city means two camps, which was quite fitting because here we have the people of Israel divided into two camps. 
Firstly, there's Absalom with, it says, all the men of Israel. Uh, next slide, there we are. Uh, so they're, they're on, on the one hand, and this it sounds like the advice of Hushai has been taken, because here we have all the men of Israel being led out by Absalom with him leading them in battle against David and his men. And so Absalom is, uh, is in charge, and he, um, he appoints, we're told, a new commander of his army in place of Joab. So Joab was the, the commander of David's army, and he remained loyal to David. So Absalom appoints his new commander, Amasa, or Amasa. Uh, now, Amasa, we've got a bit of a, a, a mix of interesting names here. I'll try to sketch it out with a family tree here on the screen. So we've got um, um, Amasa, who was the son of Jetha, uh, an Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, um, and, uh, and the sister of Zeruiah, who was the mother of Joab. Okay, there we go. So that makes um, Amasa and Joab cousins. Now, the most significant thing about this is that, that Zeruiah was also the sister of David, um, or, uh, or potentially the half-sister since they actually had different fathers. We know that David's father was Jesse. Um, and all of that means that Amasa was a nephew of David. Now, the significance of that relationship that Amasa, the commander of of um, Absalom's army was a nephew of David. That'll become significant in the coming weeks. Well, with that family tree clarified, I hope, the scene is set in, in uh, verse 26. The Israelites and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. So here are the people of Israel in rebellion against God's anointed king, camped with their rebel leader, Absalom, in the land of Gilead along the edge of the Jordan River. So that's one camp. The other of the two camps was David and his men in Mahanaim. Verse 27 tells us that when David arrived in Mahanaim, he was met by three men, uh, Shobi, Machir, and Barzillai, who have interesting names and uh, make up quite an interesting collection of supporters for David. We're told uh, with great detail the, the support that they provided to David and his men. Verse 28, it says, They brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grains, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. For they said the people have become exhausted and hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. This was an abundant blessing for the exhausted, hungry, thirsty people of God in the wilderness, the Lord is providing abundantly for his needy people in the wilderness. It harkens back to the days where the Lord provided for his needy people in the wilderness in the days of Moses. So then David, having been refreshed by this abundant blessing, chapter 18, he gathers his men, he organises them into three divisions under three leaders, under Joab, under his brother Abishai and under It the Git, or Ittai the Gittite. Uh, David intends to go out with them, to go out into battle, to lead them. But uh, they persuade him not to, to go out with them, but to stay in the city. Now, this wasn't unusual. Sometimes David had, had gone with them, other times he hadn't. For example, in 2 Samuel 10, we have two battles in that, recounted in that chapter. One of them, Joab and Abishai, led the battle. The other one, David led the battle. But on this occasion, the wisdom of the men was for David to not go into battle, since he's the particular target 
of Absalom. David, as the, the rightful king, is far too valuable to endanger. He is, as they say, worth 10,000 of them. Their advice seems to be in line with the, the good advice Ahithophel had given Absalom, just target David. But unlike Absalom, David accepts this advice. And so verse 4, halfway through, we read, So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. No, try not to think of fairy bread at that point. Um, Sorry, you can't now, can you? David's there by the gate as they march out to battle. And as the troops left the city, David gives the commanders their marching orders in in full hearing of the army. And here we see this, this tension between justice and love introduced. And what's What will David say to his loyal troops as they valiantly go into battle on his behalf? We might expect an an inspiring speech. Perhaps something like this clip from The Lord of the Rings. stuff isn't it not this day Aragorn calls the men to fight to uphold justice to bring down the powers of evil and we might expect that David would do likewise to to his to say to his loyal troops as they against all odds face the armies of all the men of Israel we might expect that instead we get this verse 5 The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Be gentle with the young man Absalom. The rebel who has white-anted the kingdom, who wants to kill David and make himself king, be gentle with him. It it, kind of doesn't seem to fit, does it? But then again, it does fit. I mean, Absalom is David's son. And despite all that he's done, David loves Absalom. He's he's clinging to his love for him. Please be gentle with him as they go into war against him. It's somewhat jarring. Nonetheless, verse 6 says, David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Firstly, we're then given a summary of the battle. Verse 7, 
their, uh, their Israel's troops were routed by David's men and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Despite the odds, David's men were victorious. Now, as readers of, of 2 Samuel, we're not surprised by this outcome. This is the outworking of what we saw, what we told last week in last week's passage in 17 verse 14, that key verse where it says, the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. The Lord is, is bringing disaster to, to this one who had defied his anointed king. Notice the, the hand of the Lord in, in the comment that the, the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. This truly was the, the battle of the forest. Juvenile Jono is reminded at this, uh, at this point of the, the dreaded fire swamp in the Princess Bride movie, you know, the the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the fire swamp that uh, devours people. The forest here devoured more men than the sword. It was obviously a hazardous place for people to be. Um, perhaps this is, again, showing, that, showing the hand of God's judgment at work as he determined to bring Absalom to justice, even through means of a, of a dangerous forest, which turns out to be exactly what happened. After the summary is given in verse 8, paraphrase, David's men were victorious, we then zoom into the key detail that interests us, what's going to happen to Absalom. We see the downfall, or perhaps I should say the uplift of Absalom. Thanks, Bertie. That was a joke. Um, we're, and we're given quite a lot of detail here. Look, at, look there at verse 9. It says, Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Notice there are a few details. Absalom's continued ego and pretense. He's riding his mule, which was a, seems to be a royal mode of transport. And he rides under the thick branches of a large oak, um, perhaps looking behind him as he's, as he's fleeing from David's men. And the NIV translation here says his hair got caught in the tree. Literally, it says his, his head got caught. Given the uh, large um, voluminous, the immensity of his voluminous hair, maybe uh, you can see why the translators might suggest his hair got caught. Maybe his head was somehow stuck between some forked branches. Um, whatever the case, he was left hanging in midair literally it says between heaven and earth while the mule he was riding kept on going he's hanging there what, what will become of him we read verse 10 when one of the men saw what had happened he told Joab I, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree Joab said to the man who told him this what you saw him why didn't you strike him to the ground right there then I'd have to give you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt Joab can't believe that this this man didn't kill Absalom. He is kill him on the spot and become a war hero. But the man defends himself. Verse 12, he says, but, but the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Edai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. The man clearly understood David's intent to be gentle with the young man Absalom. He wasn't about to to risk the king's wrath by putting the king's son to death. As he continues, verse 13, he says, If I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing's hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. He knew Joab wouldn't stick up for him if he got on the wrong side of the king. Well, Joab, true to form as a man of action, didn't have time for this. Verse 14, Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. 
So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Joab isn't interested in being gentle with Absalom. He's not interested in a response of, of love. He's all for justice for this treacherous rebel. Now, I think maybe the point of having ten men strike and kill Absalom, maybe it was to conceal which of them actually dealt the death blow. At any rate, I'd say it's about the furthest thing that you can get from David's command to be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. With Absalom dead, Joab halted the pursuit of Israel. They buried Absalom in a hasty grave marked with a large heap of rocks, which stood as a reminder of the sorry end that comes to rebels like Absalom. And like that pile of rocks over his grave, the section ends with another symbol of the demise of Absalom. Verse 18 says, During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Absalom, despite his selfish ambition, despite his rebellion against the Lord's anointed, he, he didn't become king and he had no lasting legacy other than a pillar that he erected for himself and a pile of rocks. It's a pitiful end. I'll have to wait until next week to see David's response to Absalom's downfall. You can't wait, just read on later on this afternoon. But what we see here today is, as I said, this tension between love and, and justice. I mean, surely justice is what Absalom deserved. And yet David seems unable to, to pursue it. He, he clings to his love for his son, and it, even as he sends his men into battle against him. I think we're meant to feel the, the unsatisfactory and unresolved tension between love and justice. Is it right for Absalom to receive justice? Is it right for David to love his son? How, how can both love and justice be achieved? David's such a, a mixed character, isn't he? I mean, we, we've seen these chapters throughout 2 Samuel, they, they show us this mix of his character, you know, the, the depravity of his sin, his adultery and murder, but the sincerity of his repentance. You know, when confronted by Nathan the prophet. Now we've seen his, his grief at the mistreatment of his daughter Tamar, his grief at the slaughter of his son Amnon, but also his, his lack of action to uphold justice. Uh, we've seen his shrewdness to act wisely in response to the threat of Absalom, but also his reluctance to deal justly with the murderous intent of his son. It, David is, this, is a mixed character. He's a flawed character. And yet the Lord chose him and continued to work through him to faithfully bring about his plans. Plans to ultimately bring together perfect love and perfect justice. Bring those together through another king, through one descended from David, who, unlike David, had no flaw. One who perfectly upheld both love and justice. And ultimately, love and justice can only fully meet at the cross of God's King Jesus. 
where justice is upheld as God deals with our sin against him by taking its punishment upon himself. Justice is done. And yet that's also the ultimate expression of love as the sinless son of God died for us to bring us forgiveness and freedom and restoration and relationship with God as our loving heavenly father. It's through David's greatest son, Jesus, that perfect love and perfect justice fully meet. That transforms our relationship with God for those who put their trust in Jesus, which I know is is what most of us here this morning have done, but I don't know everyone's heart. It may be that some of you haven't done that. If that's you, I want to urge you to look to Jesus to find perfect love and justice. Acknowledge King Jesus and put your trust in him before it's too late. Don't continue in your rebellion against him. You're either for him or you're against him. The love and, and justice found in Jesus, that transforms our relationship with God. What about our relationships with one another? Well, this side of heaven, we, we, we don't see this, this perfect coming together of love and justice in our relationships. Uh, we live in a fallen world and part of the fallenness of this world can mean that we we cling to one over against the other, to love or, or to justice. Maybe we, we cling to love and against justice like David, or maybe we cling to, to justice over and against love like the bloodthirsty Joab. Just this past week as I've, I've reflected on this passage and, and, and this tension between love and justice, I've seen in my own heart, in my response to others, I've seen it swing from, from harsh condemnation. You know, I haven't wanted to put three javelins through anyone, but, but I find myself jumping to, quickly to a position of judgment and, and wanting to see just con- consequences dished out. But then I swing through, a, through to a, a desire to just be passive and just kind of let things be and perhaps under the guise of, of love. I suspect I'm not alone in this struggle and tension. It's messy because unlike Jesus, none of us are perfect. But the good news of the gospel is that the peace that we have with God can and does overflow into our relationships with one another. As we repent of our sin against God, so we are led to repent of our sin against others. As we're forgiven by God, as we we find our true identity and grounding in him so we can be enabled to to hold out forgiveness to others. Which doesn't mean an an abandoning of justice, that there will still be consequences of sin in, in this world. But it does mean there can be great hope for our relationships. Because restoration with God can bring restoration with one another, as the love and justice found in heaven as that overflows to our relationships here on earth. And so the thing I want to draw out of this this account with David and Absalom is, is just to encourage you as we experience this tension in our lives, perhaps as we swing from one pole to the other, from love to justice, look to God's king, David's greatest son, See the perfect love and justice that's found in him 
and allow that reality to shape how we respond to and relate to one another. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. That's a great prayer as we pray for the, the perfect coming of love and justice here on earth as it is in heaven. It's a great thing to pray for. It's a great thing to seek to live out. Will you join me as we pray now? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your Son, the King Jesus, David's greater Son, in whom is found perfect love, perfect justice. Father, forgive us our sin against you and against one another. Strengthen us to look to Jesus and may his love and justice seen on the cross, may that shape our lives and our relationships to your glory. Amen.